Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with sultry New York City jazz vocalist Molly Ryan. On the heels of her newest 2015 album called Let's Fly Away, she discussed a great many things during our interview, from growing up in Roseville, California, and learning jazz tricks from a family friend, Bob Ringwald, the father of actress, author, and singer Molly Ringwald. These days, she is living in New York City with her husband and the producer of her albums, Dan Levinson. Over the course of our interview both molly and dan discuss this new album and she talks about her heroes what is in store for her and i also caught up with her mentor and good friend bob ringwald and he discussed molly's talent and what it was like to teach her please dig this collective interview my friends thank you for taking a little bit of time out to speak with me i love your music you're so sweet thank you no it's it's no trouble my first question is what's been going on lately what was going on in italy and kind of talk to me a little bit about what's been going on with you yeah, basically, we've just been, the majority of of our time lately, or my time, has been spent promoting the album. Everything I've been doing is, is just trying to get the word out there about the music. And of course, we did the, we did the music video, still trying to um, plug that and market that. Talk to me a little bit about the album. What was, uh, what was kind of the creative synergy that went into it? How long did it take? Just kind of the material that's on the album. Talk to me a little bit about it. I've been obsessed with, with traveling since I was a kid, and I knew there are these dream albums that, that we as artists have in our head, these projects that we're not sure are going to be completed, but somehow this dream that we have to keep striving toward. And after the success of my, my first Kickstarter and being able to make Swing to Your Supper, I realized that I really wanted to make this travel album with some songs that I wanted to go in a different direction than Swing for Your Supper. I wanted to have a more laid-back swing feel, but I also wanted to bring that that youthfulness that I try to I try to tell my musical directors that that I'd like to convey in the arrangements is I want it to be fun, always fun, not not so campy or or cutesy, but I I do like the arrangements to be fun. And so I decided that I could do the second Kickstarter and I shot for this high goal of $20,000, which seems like a lot, but the, but in reality, we even had to put in more on top of that. You know, it's, it just takes so much to to do these things, but it was the only way I could make it happen. The only way. And, I was determined, and and everyone said, why, why, twenty thousand dollars is so much. I said, well, I gotta do it. So every day, I worked. I just put a little bit of time into it, and when I finally reached that goal, I realized I could make this album, and I got so excited. But the whole process took at least a year and a half from conception to actually getting the album out, because. The first project is, is the Kickstarter itself. Kickstarter is the whole project. And then once that's finished, then you can start thinking about lining up your musicians, who you're going to get, and, and making it all making it all possible. And I just knew I wanted a little taste of, of all the places that meant something to me. And, of course, there are, there are countries and, and areas of the world that we weren't able to include on the album, but maybe someday there'll be a version 2 or version 3, and I can... I can add some Russian and some Egyptian themes in there, and that would be that would be cool too. But I, yeah. I did get a nice mix, and I love to bring back obscure songs like "Wanderer," you know, is Bud Flanagan's song. Yeah. You know, nobody knows "Wanderer" anymore, but yeah. But but now they do. Now they they can hear it, and they can hear it in a swing version. So I don't know if that answers your question, but no, 
You know, it totally does. And, and, and I always love that spirit of Kickstarter. It's kind of this new way that I would be real curious to see if we had that going years and years ago, how many people would have more expanded opportunities. But the great thing about Kickstarter is that you already, without even doing anything yet, have an audience that's willing and waiting for that work to come out, which is so cool. You know. Yeah, that's um, true. And you also feel like you have you have these people that want to see you succeed. It shouldn't mean as much as it does. You know, there's the theory that that you you know a compliment shouldn't make you feel better and and vice versa. But but it does. It does. It, it lifts your spirit and it and it just makes you want to make your project even greater because you have these people that that are already willing and and want to hear what you have to say. So talk to me about a childhood lived in Roseville, California, that would bring about a jazz singer that's in New York City today. <laughs> um, yeah, Roseville is it's a cool little town. I it's um I mean it's it's a suburban area, but at the same time, it's not the same kind of suburbia that I've witnessed uh, on the East Coast or even in, in the uh, Midwest. I was fourth generation in Roseville and third generation at my high school, so I had a lot of history in the area. And Roseville's only 20 minutes north of Sacramento, which hosts a huge jazz festival every Memorial Day weekend. And it used to be called the Dixieland Festival, um, Dixieland Jazz Jubilee, and, and it's changed names. Now now they've gotten rid of the, the word jazz, which is a little sad for a lot of us, but it's called the Music Festival. And they still have that. And it's not as big as it once was, but when I was a kid, it was huge. It covered so many areas of the city, and they had city buses that would that were part of the festival and would ship you from from venue to venue. I used to go with my dad, and he he's he's a techie. He just he loves anything having to do with wires and electronic equipment. He's very good with that stuff, and um, he would be a volunteer sound engineer at this jazz festival. And I'd follow him around the festival, and my mother would dress me up, and I'd I'd have my little hot pink flapper outfit with a hot pink hot pink umbrella, okay. running down the aisles and and dancing with all these adult flappers, and I I don't know it was kind of cutesy until um, this band leader saw that I was dancing, and he said, well can you sing too? And my dad said, yes, he sings, and and so he sent me some music. That was Ralph Reynolds, and he sent me some music, and I learned some tunes. Luckily, I had a great resource, still do. It's uh, my dad's high school friend, Bob Ringwald, who is a jazz pianist out in California near Roseville. He's a, he's Molly Ringwald's father. He would just welcome us into the house and play some songs for me and put them on the cassette tapes, and I'd take them home and, and learn them. And I, A lot of my early repertoire was all from him and through him. He He's the one that taught me songs. I, I was always interested in music, singing, arts, dancing, being on stage. That's always something that interested me, along with traveling and, and flying with my dad, who was also a pilot. It was, a, it was an interesting childhood, and it got me interested in jazz, and it didn't ever leave. That's what I wanted to do. I, I love that old music more than any other kind of music. It doesn't make you too popular in school, but it's so much fun. It's just the best. It's I feel connected to, to the music from the swing era and, and previous years. This is Bob Ringwald. Talk uh-huh. to me a little bit about your history with Molly Ryan. I've known Molly Ryan's parents since, since they were teenagers. We were all teenagers. They were slightly younger than me, but... Uh, uh, not by only a couple of years. And so, actually, um, 
uh, Molly's dad is a ham radio operator, and so am I. So that's how that I happen to know him many, many years ago. We Both of us are still ham operators. So um, I've known Molly since practically since she was born. And from a very, very early age, she wanted to uh, play music, and she wanted to play jazz. And uh, I thought she'd grow out of it eventually and end up in rock or something if she did stay in music. But but no, she stayed with jazz. Uh, she's got that in her blood, I guess, like like I do and a lot of us jazz musicians who who end up being poor instead of playing terrible rock music and, and getting rich. <laughs> yeah, so, absolutely. <laughs> so, so she stayed with it and she's uh, worked at it and um, and been very successful and uh, just doing really well. So during that time, whenever I'd get to Sacramento, I would get together with uh, Molly Ryan and help her and, and run through songs and give her advice on, you know, possibly uh, hitting notes square and uh, some breathing maybe and her breathing techniques and so forth. But she she worked very hard. She's one of those kids I never minded working with that when you told them something, the next time you saw them, they had learned what you said and done it and gone on from there. Whereas it gets very discouraging to work with with someone who you're trying to teach and when you see them the next time they've, back, they've backslid and you've got to go over the same uh, area of uh, expertise or uh, information, you have to go over it again and again and again. Uh, she was never like that. Uh, same with my own daughter. Was uh, They just soaked up what you told them and, and uh, went on from there. And she was always that way and just really worked very hard. So I, 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 she gives me possibly more credit than, than what I deserve, uh, as far as helping her along. But I, in her mind, I guess I helped her a lot. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So she, uh, she's, you know, doing just. It's mainly, I'll bet, eighty percent of it's just her working very, very hard at what she was doing and learning and practicing and, uh, and so forth. She had that determination that it takes. Let me ask you this. Give me kind of a synopsis of your life for, say, when you were getting out of high school to where you are in your migration to New York. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> when I was leaving high school, there was some drama at, at home, always drama at home. I, I have a difficult relationship with my mother, and one day while she went to church, I decided to move out. But my version of moving out was moving next door into my grandmother's house because I couldn't uh-huh. afford to go anywhere else. So I moved out so that I could have my freedom. And then I started applying for all the colleges that I I wanted to go to or I thought I wanted to go to. So I applied for Juilliard, which didn't have a jazz program at the time. And I applied for the new school and Manhattan School of Music and the Institute of Dramatic Arts. They have one in, in Los Angeles and in New York. I heard back from everybody, and the place I got accepted was the new school. They called me up and and I was worried about tuition, and they said it was about 56000 a year, and I can't afford that, and, and especially since I didn't even want to be a teacher. I wanted to be a performer, and they called and offered a, an $8,000 scholarship a year. I still wasn't in, the, in a place financially to accept $44,000 tuition a year, but I decided that I wanted to move to New York anyway, and I wanted to have a go at singing and acting and doing what I loved, and I had this great 
resource, which was Dan Levinson, who is now my husband. And back then, he was just one of these huge supporters and friends. He was very realistic with me, just told me how it was and told me what I should expect. And, you know, if if I'm not going to come to New York and work really hard, then I shouldn't do it. Eventually, I decided that the best thing for me to do was to come to New York. So after working a few part-time jobs, I got on a plane on August 11th. I got on JetBlue, and I, I flew to New York, and I brought a couple boxes with me. And I moved into this little studio apartment. From there, I, I thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm here. I, I, I need a backup. I need, I need something in case music doesn't work. So I decided to go to beauty school. So I spent seven or seven to nine months going through a beauty school program while trying to get some local gigs. I got maybe one or two a month. So I was working in the village at Terra Blues doing some private events, but it wasn't much. And the, the traditional jazz scene here when I moved here was dwindling. It was just teetering on the edge of leaving for good. And and I was worried about it. Dan was worried about it too. We talked about, you know, what, what other styles of music were popular and what we could possibly do. And, and it was one, one day I was going through Craigslist and this was a, a few years after I'd moved here. It was about 2006 and I moved here in 2003. Um, I was on Craigslist looking for jam sessions. I just happened to be, um, that's something I did in, on my off time. And I saw one that said, Dixieland Jazz Jazz Jam tonight, and it listed a venue. And I ran over to to Dan, who was playing at a a place called The Cajun, which was the only place in town that had traditional jazz playing nightly. And it was their last night. They were closing down. And I ran over there because we had a friend's band that was playing. And I said, you guys, do you want to go check this out, this Dixieland Jam? So we show up, and, and it's me and Dan Levinson and Kevin Dorn, drummer, and um, I believe Jesse Gelber on piano, we show up at this place, and they are. They're playing 1920s jazz. We don't know any of these people. They're all about my age. And I'm what is going on? Who are these people? And they don't know us from Boo. And so we sit there for a while, and then we come up and we say, hey, you know, we're musicians. We'd love to do a tune with you. Oh, we'd love to do a tune with you. Would that be all right? And they, they said, yeah, sure. Yeah, they said, uh, we're going to do a song called Honeysuckle Rose. We have a chart on it in case you don't know it. And and we all look at each other. We go, oh, we're okay. We're, <laughs> we, we got this. So we start playing, and all the, these young guys are looking at us like, who are you? <laughs> Where did you come from? What What's going on? And uh and that was kind of the beginning of this new wave of of trad jazz in in New York, like the the old mixing with the new, because there was there was a scene building that we didn't know about, and we were we were on the verge of it, and it built from there. And people have been mainly young people have been coming to New York since then, uh, still coming, and they had and and creating these gigs nightly and it's at the point now where if you want to hear traditional jazz in New York City you've got your pick of any night of the week you've got a pick of of a you know half a dozen to a dozen places that you can go hear the music that's the difference between now and and 10 years ago is there was almost nothing and now it's everywhere 
Yeah. And and it's it's amazing. It's amazing. I tell people to come here. I, I say if you come, you'll if you play an instrument, you sit in, and uh, there's just so much happening. It's it's crazy and it's great. It's so yeah. great for all of us. Absolutely. Well, and I noticed that with a lot of the old guard folks that 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 are looking in on jazz and hoping that things continue to go in a very uh, robust way. And uh, Kansas City is kind of similar to that. There's a lot of musicians that are coming through UMKC here because of Bobby Watson, and there's a lot of people on the scene. So uh, there's a right. vitality that, that really is kind of coursing through America with jazz in a lot of cities that are, were the original cradles, so to speak. So that's a good thing. So I don't want to get hung up that much on Bob Ringwald. I found it interesting as I really kind of started sinking my claws into jazz as a radio host that this name kept coming up and I didn't realize that his daughter was the starlet of the eighties screen. And yeah. what, what, what I find interesting about the relationship that you have is that, you know, it, it almost seems like he kind of led you into this jazz um, life that you have. And then you've had the chance to perform your debut album, dream a little dream. He was on it. What, what is that whole relationship been like? He's been like a, like a, second father kind of like a like a musical mentor really he's just he he's one of those people who there's no putting around he gives it to you straight and he's always told me what I can do to improve if, if I if there, if I sound off or if I'm doing something right he 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 says yeah do more of that and I mean I don't talk to him as much now but uh, we email occasionally but back in back in my childhood my youth he was definitely this force, like, and I, and I just, I looked up to him. I mean, I know Molly does too. Um, I mean, this is this is her dad, and and we kind of have a similar story, except um, with with him, with him being the mentor. And I just feel so lucky to have to have him have him there. And and I, he really is one of my favorite piano players. He plays in this barrel house style that that most of the pianists now. I don't know if they avoid it or if they just don't know how to play in that style, but but there's something rough and raw about about how he plays, and and it it pulls at you, and it just it's just it's just gritty, and I love it. I just I love his playing. I he's still one of my favorite pianists. Let me ask you this: You get to New York, you performed at all of these venues. You're in the jazz cradle of the world, so to speak. What place did you play at for the first time where you were just kind of bespeckled by the whole uh, history and just being in that place? I'd love to say that every place is like that. <laughs> um, as much as um, I'd love to say one of the one of the top jazz clubs, it it was probably the Rainbow Room. And recently I did Joe's Pub, and that was that was pretty intense too because I I just felt like. So many people have been on that stage and been able to perform there, and and it just it was overwhelming, and I felt a um, a sense of pride and the need to perform my best, my very best, because I was living in the shadow of so many greats. But the Rainbow Room, I walked in there, and I'm I'm wearing my my long black gown, and I have my guitar, and you just Stop. You stop in the doorway, and it just looks like you're entering paradise. It's with the crystal chandeliers covering 
the room and and the crystal curtains covering the windows and everything's in glass and gold and the rotating wood dance floor that's been there since its opening in, in the 1930s. This is, it, it was majestic. I couldn't help but I felt glittery. <laughs> I felt like like I'd entered a new world. This yeah. this this glam glamorous and elegant venue that I'd never seen before, and and it was and it was remarkable to me that all the patrons when they when they came in were just as they seemed just as astonished and happy and completely dressed up in the nines. And and you just feel like you're part of this world class act that's going on, <laughs> like like you're in another world. Well, speaking of another world, explain this sentence from your bio. Molly can be heard on the Grammy Award winning HBO television series Boardwalk Empire. Yes. Well, that's funny. I was I was on vacation in Hawaii, and I got an email from Vince Giordano, who was working on the show. Dan's did so much of that soundtrack too with Vince and was even one of the actors in the show. I I wasn't an actor but anyway I'm sitting in Hawaii I get this email that says uh, would you be willing to come in and record two songs for season one and I'm thinking oh boy like I they want to do this this weekend and I we we'd planned on coming back from Hawaii a day later and I looked at Danny. I said, "I really, I really want to do this. I wanna, I wanna record. It's not, it's not a lot of money, but it's, but it's just to be on the show. Is, I mean, that's an opportunity in itself. And so we made the decision to come back from our vacation a day early, <laughs> so that I could. It was a red eye flight from Honolulu. We took the red eye flight, which got in around five or six a.m. And I went right from the airport, Newark Airport, to the recording studio." I just laid down these two tracks. It was uh, Singing the Blues and A Good Man is Hard to Find. Yeah, Singing the Blues and A Good Man is Hard to Find. And I show up and Ehude Sherry is, is there on the piano. And Vince is there and, and the directors for the um, the musical directors for the show is there. And I just do a few takes of it, each one. And they say, that's great. You're good. And it only took, it only took half an hour at the most uh-huh. to, to put these two songs down. And I said, well, I came all the way from Hawaii just to do those two songs, but but there they are. They didn't make it on the um, the final CD for the the soundtrack CD for the season one, but but they are on the show. They're in they're in a couple of the episodes. So that's how that came about. So as a performer, you've had all kinds of glowing descriptions. Things like she sounds worldly, wise beyond her years wonderfully gentle and lyrical, silvery voice. There's all kinds of adjectives and descriptors. How would you describe your sound? I like to think that my sound is genuine. That's pretty much the only word I can I can think of. I I love the music, so I start out with a passion for it to begin with, and then I tell the story of the song. I feel like that's my reason for... For being that's my reason for being in the band that's the purpose of the singer is to convey the message using words the audience is going to understand and I just try to tell the story that the that the writer and the lyricist wanted to tell and and I do it honestly and and it's the most open that I am I'm I'm more open with the audience when I'm singing than I am when I'm just talking to them in between songs 
So let me ask you this. Who would you consider your jazz heroes? Oh, I've got so many. <laughs> from from Bing Crosby to, to Peggy Lee, Al Jolson to to Louis Armstrong. Um there's so many. I, I love all the Helens and Helen Ward, Helen Forrest, Helen O'Connell, um, Margaret Whiting, Joe Joe Stafford, Lee Wiley, Bessie Smith, Sophie Tucker. There's the list just goes on and on. I, I love them all. They they all bring something different to the table and have taught me something about myself and my, my sound and, and who I want to be as an artist. So let's whittle that list down and let's say that you have a DeLorean and you can punch in the digits and go back in time and to a place and see a performance or two. Who would you want to go see and where would you want to see that? Oh, that that's tricky. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't want just one. <laughs> I don't want just one. I really would have loved to be at Carnegie Hall in 1938 at the Benny Goodman concert or at the Palomar Ballroom the night Benny Goodman opened at the Palomar. That that would have been spectacular. There's so many places I would have loved to be. But yeah. um, we're just so fortunate to have all the recordings that we do with technology being what it is and and YouTube and Spotify, everything is at our fingertips. Not not always the great quality, but but everything is available to us. You can just through email we can we can locate people who have these obscure records that otherwise we wouldn't have been able to find twenty years ago even it was it was difficult for people to to locate LPs and, and discs that had their the music that they'd been looking for. We're we're so fortunate. Absolutely, we are. It is a plethora. You obviously, it's very evident you love jazz. You've dedicated your life to it. You've seen the jazz. Why do you love jazz? Why does anyone love anything? It's not something you can explain. It's just the feelings that you get. You know, it's just it's just your heart tells you when when you love something. You want it. You want it to fill you up. You want to be yeah. surrounded by it, and it makes you. A better person, you know. You know what I mean. It's just, yeah. it's just a. It's hard to explain why you love something, but you know it when you feel it. And yeah. when I hear this kind of music, I know, like, I love this music. I love performing this music, but I love to hear this music, and I, and I love other people who love this music. It's it's exciting and it's beautiful. Let me ask you this: What's the greatest thing about waking up every day? <laughs> Being alive, <laughs> waking up every day, knowing that there's still so much to accomplish and new things to do, new things to learn, that's the best part, is that so, it's never done. It's never over. There's yeah. always something new. Well, speaking of never being done, let's say in 10 years, we have a reboot interview to talk about what's going on. What are you going to want to tell me happened? Oh, I, I well, 10 years? It goes by quickly, doesn't it? Oh, crazy. <laughs> I'd love to say that I've somehow managed to make this profession financially. <laughs> I'm financially successful, and uh, and I have a, a great home life, and maybe I'll have a family by then. And I don't know. There's a lot that I'd love to say happen. Like, Perfect, Molly. Hey, thank you again. And if I could just get a minute, I'll speak with Dan, and, and I will sure. let you yeah, he's be right on your here. way. Okay, cool. Thank you so much, Joe. It was nice hey, talking thank to you. you. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Good luck. 
Maybe I could be able to tell you that I went on my world tour for the first time. What are your thoughts on the album? How did you feel it turned out? I'm a little bit too close to it to be objective, um, more so than the first, the, the, the previous album, um, even though I co-produced both of them. Uh, this one, I helped select a repertoire, and they were songs that were particularly close to my heart, so I I suppose, um, I, even though it's under Molly's name, I feel as much a part of it as she does. I remember oh, I, some years back, we did an album with some great musicians who were in town. We got them all together, and one of them in the studio looking around at all the, the talent said, it would be pretty hard to make a bad record with these guys. That applies in this case. We had a stellar ensemble. I mean, really, our favorite musicians, we made it come together by uh, by hiring guys that we really love to play with and love to listen to. So so um, it would have been hard to make a bad album. But on top of that, um, I really put a lot of time and effort into writing arrangements. Uh, I don't write a lot of arrangements. I've written them for my own albums. It's just the first time I've written arrangements for somebody else's album. But again, I felt as much of, uh, uh, as though it were my album as any of my own albums under my own name. So I wrote, I think, nine of the arrangements, and Dan Barrett, who was really my a great influence on me and a mentor, and uh, was there right at the beginning of my career, uh, who plays trombone on the album, wrote the other five arrangements. And I, I respect him as an arranger and um, am certainly influenced by him in developing my own arranging style. So we, we start with that, start with the concept and uh, and uh, repertoire, and then you start putting together the music. That's, that's where the arrangements come in. Um, on, I, I guess a lot of people don't appreciate how much how much pre-production uh, is involved and how much post-production is involved. You're in the studio for uh, maybe five hours a day, and that's the easy part. Because everybody's there, and if you've done your homework, the arrangements are, print, are written and printed out, and they come in there and play them. Then you have to take that all and, and put it together into something cohesive and create a, a track order. And we, we were very... Um, methodical about how to how to put the tracks in an order that told the story as Molly may have mentioned to you so um, we, we travel around the world and uh, in, in 60 minutes which are the title of my liner notes so how did it come out it was a long way around to, to answering your initial question I couldn't be happier it's the most um, the how to put this? It is, it is um, more than I. It turned, it turned out to be more than I hoped to get out of this, and, and it sounded better than I thought it would. And I had high expectations to begin with because I knew we came into the studio prepared with arrangements and, and a good band. But it turned out to be so much more, and it's been one of the most rewarding projects of my entire career. I'm very proud of it. Um, I uh, and I'm proud of Molly for um, for making it happen. You know, as, as a child, I I always wanted to be a vocalist, 
And I, you know, some people have a natural gift. I was not one of them. I tried for many years and I took lessons and, you know, just didn't happen. But when I met Molly, that, that's the voice that um, I, I, I wish I had. I know that sounds funny, but that's that's how I like to hear songs sung. And I'm a real song maven. I appreciate not only the melodies, but also the lyrics, you know, and that's half of the song. You don't really... You don't really um, uh, think about the lyrics and the lyricists very much, but uh, that's they're as much a part of the song as the composers. Um, there's a famous story about uh, uh, I, I may get the, the uh, characters wrong in the story, but somebody saying to Dorothy Hammerstein, who was Arthur Hammerstein's widow at that point, um, uh, I really, I really love. Um, Richard Rogers is um oh I, I really love Jerome Kern's Old Man River. Um and Dorothy Hammerstein said Jerome Kern wrote da 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 my husband wrote Old Man River. There's a wonderful right. book by Philip Furia called um, Poets of Tin Pan Alley or The Poets of Tin Pan Alley, one of my favorite books about the lyricists. So getting back to the the project, Molly is um, is not only the embodiment of the melodies, but also the great lyrics that these lyricists wrote. And I really, really like hearing those. She's done a fabulous job. And not only putting the songs across, but putting the songs across in a way that I think would make the composers and lyricists proud. She's very loyal to the original melodies. She doesn't do a lot of jazz interpretation. She doesn't scat. Um, she just sings the songs in a simple and unaffected manner. And that's what makes this album and Molly's singing in general so special to me. Hey, thanks again for your time. Good luck with the album and take it easy. Thank you. Many thanks to you, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Molly for her voice, her music, and her gusto. And thanks to both Dan Levinson and Bob Ringwald for their time and insight. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz until next time enjoy the music my friends neon jazz